Welcome back, friends. James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com. This is the Corbett Report podcast, but this is not the regular podcast itself. This is the Questions for Corbett, where, of course, I answer the questions that come in from all the listeners all around the world. And instead of a regular edition of the podcast, we're going to do that this weekend. And the reason that we're going to do that uh, relates back to what I was talking about back in episode 287 of the podcast a few weeks ago before I left for France, where I did the podcastumentary experience experiment with the Lee Harvey Oswald podcast, where it was a documentary format, and I asked for everyone's opinion about that format as I'm thinking of changing things up here at the Corporate Report podcast. I got a lot of feedback on that. Thank you very much for all the feedback that came in. The feedback was nearly unanimous and nearly unanimously positive as uh, the podcastumentary format was well-liked by most, almost all. And I'm glad to hear that because I really do think of that as a way forward for the podcast. Of course, we're nearing 300 uh, podcasts, and after six and a half years and nearly 300 times of doing the podcast in relatively the same format, I really do think it is time for a change. I want to shake things up uh, just for myself and for my own sake, also for the listeners out there, and I really do think that the podcastumentary format is a perfect format for exploring some of the issues that are too big and too, too intricate to be simply dealt with in a regular edition of the podcast. But as you may well imagine, those podcastumentaries require a lot more effort, especially as I'm going to start upping the game and trying to put in more of my own effort and relying less on clips from other people. And as I do that, obviously it's going to rely uh, require more and more research, more and more input, more and more effort to put those together, which means that obviously I can't do that on a weekly basis. So the idea of putting out a podcastumentary on a weekly basis is completely impossible. As a result, I'm going to be devoting more of my time and research to putting those podcast documentaries together on a monthly basis. And in the meantime, there will be the questions for Corbett. There will be film literature in the New World Order. Uh, there will be still occasional um, regular episodes of the podcast, just the regular edition uh, format of the podcast. So uh, next week, for example, I plan on putting uh, another regular podcast out. But uh, from now on, uh, for at least for the, I think, the coming year, we're going to try to put out a podcast documentary on a monthly basis, and I will devote my time, effort, and resources to that project and ultimately, of course, it will be up to the listeners out there whether or not they'll support me in this endeavor. I really do think we're going to tackle some pretty big uh, uh, ideas and uh, hopefully in a way that's compelling and uh, in a way that's usable for people that you can spread it around to people. So uh, so I'm going to be working on that very diligently for the coming year. In the meantime, we do have questions for Corbett. Of course, this is where I answer your questions. Email, Twitter, uh, YouTube, however you get your questions in, uh, use the hashtag QFC on YouTube or Twitter so that I can easily find it. And uh, of course, you can also send in audio, uh, audio-only questions. You can record yourself, put it up on SoundCloud or AudioBoo, or put it up as a video file to a video sharing site. However you put your, uh, your audio up, I'll be happy to answer it. And on that note, we did get our first audio-only question in from Kitten. So let's go to the, straight to the first question. Dear James, I was very much inspired by your talk about creating your own media. It's something that I've been interested in for a long time. I have been producing my own podcast about gaming for a long time and have a fairly large viewership. I've been wanting to use my skills of research and be able to take complex information and put it into layman terms to help people understand issues quickly. So my question is about fear. I'm honestly scared of my government and others. I live in the UK at the moment. And if you've ever been here, we have gone surveillance mad. 
I have been recently reading a lot about what happened in Chile with the sports stadiums and the torture that went on under General Pinochet. I'm very scared that we're moving more and more towards regimes that will torture and hurt people who speak out against governments, especially the press. James, I'm a regular subscriber and I know you have a daughter and family. Are you not scared of the consequences on what you're reporting on will maybe one day put your family at risk? I'm really struggling with this question. Is it really worth sticking my head above the parapet? All right, thank you very much for that audio, Kidden. I really do appreciate that, and I appreciate the question because it is one, again, one of those questions that I get an awful lot. And just to prove that point, let's turn to an email on a very similar line, I think, um, coming from Corey, who writes, uh, James, when I first woke up, I became concerned about my privacy on the internet and my emails. Then I started feeling a bit rebellious with an, oh, screw them attitude, and stopped worrying about making my searches and web surfing private. I have the thought that if we all just put it all out there, what are they going to do about it? But I do keep hearing you and others talk about ways to keep our email and internet private, so I'm wondering again if I need to be more cautious. I'm just a mom for crying out loud. Are they really going to come for me in the middle of the night because I'm always searching and emailing about alternative news? Just looking for some perspective on this. Thanks. Okay, so a couple of different takes on this question of people who are wondering, should they be fearful about this alternative news? Should they be fearful about spreading this information? Should they be fearful about even looking it up now that we know that for sure we know that the NSA is looking at everything you do online? Um, should we be nervous about this? Should we be hiding it? Should we be adjusting what we do? Should should we be trying to hide what we're doing? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, lots of questions like this. And they are, they are good questions. They go right to the heart of the issues that I think this entire alternative media revolution represents. And unfortunately, this isn't the question kind of question that I can answer for anyone else but myself. And obviously, I've made the decision to put myself and my name out there and on the line because I do really, truly believe in this. And I believe that I don't want to live in a society where I have to watch over my shoulder and wonder if Big Brother is watching me and wonder what's going to happen if I dare to speak out against the system because that is precisely what I am fighting against. And that is exactly the type of society I don't want to live in. So while we have this opportunity to spread this information, I'm going to spread it as far and wide as I can. And that's the decision that I made in number of years ago, and obviously I'm uh, I'm far too committed to go back at this point, even if I wanted to. Uh, uh, Kidden, you raise a very interesting point, though, about, uh, for example, my family, who um, certainly has not made this decision for themselves, and obviously my son, my new newborn son, only seven months old at this point, uh, clearly has not made that type of decision, and yet he is saddled now with the Corbett name, which will presumably bring with it some baggage, and presumably close certain doors uh, should he wish to uh, to open them in the future um, so it's it's that's a very difficult decision that I have to make as well but ultimately it's the decision that I've made for myself that has that ripple effect on those around me and uh, th and there's really not much that I, I can do about that at this point anyway even if I wanted to as I say so I am committed I understand people who are c nervous and cautious about this and don't want to get involved and don't want to stick their head above the parapet um, but I uh, ultimately, I think if if you are concerned about th that, if you w don't want to live in that society, then now is the time to st stand up and do something about it. Not, you know, it's not going to be any good uh, in some future society where they go for the hot, full on martial law and uh, everyone's locked down in the, in the FEMA camps, because that will be the time you're kicking yourself in the posterior, posterior for not having done something earlier. So 
again, I can't make this decision for anyone else. All I know is that I don't want to live in that society, so I'm going to do what I can while I can to try to change and deflect the course that we're on. Uh, let's move on to the next uh, email. This one from Nicholas, who writes, If polonium-210 only comes from nuclear reactors... How is it that there can be a normal amount in someone's body, much less an 18 times normal amount? All right, thank you very much for that question, Nicholas. It's a good question. And for those who don't know, this relates back to the story that broke a few weeks ago that Yasser Arafat was presumably poisoned by polonium-210. And this is a finding that happened after Yasser Arafat's body and some of his possessions were dug up and tested by a team of experts in Switzerland. And they came to the conclusion that Arafat was very likely poisoned with polonium-210, which is a radioactive substance. And the reports at the time indicated that uh, that uh, the amount, uh, the, 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 the concentration of radiation, radioactive polonium in the samples that were tested of Arafat indicated that there were 18 times higher than normal levels found in his tissues that were tested. So uh, what does this mean? Uh, well, at the time, for example, in New World Next Week, when we were covering it, I, n I mentioned that uh, this type of polonium-210 poisoning could only occur um, basically with the, the help of a nuclear reactor. You would need a reactor to get this, this level of polonium-210, which is a byproduct of the ura uranium-238 uh, decay process. So, uh, so I indicated that it would have to be an uh, a nation, a nuclear-capable nation, and, uh, well... Israel happens to be a nuclear-capable nation, although, of course, they've never officially admitted that. So there you go. And so that was the case I was putting forward at the time. This is a good question. Well, if, it's, uh, if, it's, if it requires a nuclear reactor to get polonium-210, then how can there be normal levels of polonium in anyone? Well, uh, this goes back to, uh, to just sort of the basic physics of polonium-210, and people can look this up on basically any basic research site, that there is uh, a natural occurrence of polonium-210 in the biosphere, this comes from uh, uh, just natural uranium-238 decay in the Earth's crust. So there is a certain amount of polonium-210 in the environment. And as a result, that does make its way into the food chain. It does make its way into the marine uh, life cycle, and it does make its way into humans. So there is a natural level of polonium-210. But when you say it's 18 times higher, of course, that concentration of polonium-210 is the type of concentration that could only come from a concerted attempt to poison someone with polonium-210, the only way to extract polonium-210 in the types of quantities found in that tissue is to extract it from a nuclear reactor. So the polonium-210 in Arafat's body had to have come from a, uh, a nuclear reactor or, or someone with access to a reactor. So that that's where that lies. And, uh, and, and interestingly enough, just a couple of days ago, a leaked French report has indicated Yasser Arafat was not poisoned. So a, a team of French scientists have concluded that it, he died as a result of a, quote, generalized infection and not the result of radiation poisoning from the 18 times higher than normal polonium-210 in, uh, in the samples tested, which is a bizarre conclusion to come to if you were actually looking for the straight truth, which apparently the French team was not. Uh, what is a generalized infection and uh, how exactly did he die from it? Uh, they weren't able to ascertain that when he died in 2004 from his autopsy, and they're not obviously able to ascertain that now. So now that we have cred credible evidence that he was poisoned with polonium, now they're still trying to pass this off as just some mystery disease that came out of nowhere. But uh, as a follow-up to that, the Swiss scientists who came out with that finding originally have just 
uh, come out with another uh, statement saying that they stand by their findings, that they had a radiation expert on their team that confirmed that it was radiation um, poisoning, it was polonium. And uh, this, the French team that ruled this out didn't have such a radiation expert on their team. So uh, so where are they getting their science from? Um, very interesting issue. I'll, of course, include the links to all of those articles in the show notes so you can go and look it up for yourself. Let's turn to Twitter. We have a user at SeaDevil who writes... What are the chances that Executive Order 6102 could be revived in the U.S., and does that explain gold prices going down? For those not in the know, Executive Order 6102 was the executive order issued on April 5th, 1933 by FDR to confiscate the gold in the United States at that time being held by individuals, partnerships, associations, and corporations, and uh, basically asking them to turn it into the government um, in exchange for uh, Federal Reserve funny money. Um well, uh, uh, so this is this is this has happened before. They did confiscate the gold and um, and put it into Fort Knox, which from which it was pilfered over the years. And uh, the question is, could it happen again? Is this why there is this uh, lowering of gold prices? This is why gold is uh, is so um, suppressed from where we would expect to see it if there was a, a free market in gold at the moment. Um, I suppose. I mean, it is a possibility. As I say, it's happened before. It could happen again. Although I think it would probably be more likely. Rather than confiscate the physical gold, why wouldn't they just confiscate the profits? Uh, if gold was to completely de- uh, to to pop up from from the suppressed price that it's at, and if it were to approach something. Uh, even approaching its its nominal market price, which would be somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 times where it is right now, if it were to ever actually start to unhinge and, and start to reach those levels, there is no doubt in my mind that the government would put some sort of tax on on the, the exchange of gold for, for dollars or what have you, so that if people tried to cash in their gold, it would uh, it would most of it would go to the government who would take most of the gains. I have no doubt about that. So they don't necessarily have to confiscate the physical gold. They can just confiscate the profits. Either way, yes, I do see that as a potential, certainly in the event of a dollar collapse or or of a gold uh, price rise and something that people should be aware of. And uh, perhaps that's one reason why actual exchange of precious metals for directly for goods is something that should be established in this point of time so that people don't have to transfer it back into meaningless paper dollars before they start exchanging for goods. Uh, let's move on to Ramon, who has an interesting question about anarchy. He writes, should land ownership be impossible for all? Should we all realize that we are temporary users of this planet and can't own a part of it, not even for a few years? I'm not saying socialism. That implies state ownership. Shared ownership has never worked either. Private ownership leads to owning classes. Almost all big issues I have a clear mind on, money, food, water, energy, political organization, etc., Land ownership, I can't find a proper solution unless it is some kind of general realization of our own temporary existence. Thank you very much for this question, Ramon. It is a very good question, and it goes, I think, really to the heart of the matter. There are a lot of, I think, petty and silly um, uh, counter-refutations that are given to to anarchism and, and its various flavors and inflections, but this is one that I think really does go to the heart of the matter, because it's one thing to say that property is uh, is sacrosanct and that people should respect it, and any infringement on it is a, a, a violation of the non-aggression principle. It's another thing to say what can or cannot be property. Um, Can you own air? Can you own land? Can you own waterways? 
and if so, how? And generally, I think the uh, the, the general answer that a lot of people uh, would give to this uh, falls in line with some sort of Lockean principle of homesteading and some idea that if you mix your labor with the land, that by through that act, it becomes uh, your property, etc. Um, I understand how that is not a parsimonious answer, and there are a lot of, I think, a lot of subtleties and nuances to this that need to be explored. Um, can someone putting up uh, a claim around an, uh, a parcel of land, say, one square kilometer, uh, claim that for himself if he, if he plants trees on it and blah, blah, blah? Oh, you could make a case for that. Well, how about 100 square kilometers? How about 1,000? How about if someone stakes a claim around an entire continent and puts up a tree here or there? Um, At what point does that become ridiculous? What point does that become untenable? Um, Can land property uh, like any other type of property transfer to um, to whoever the uh, the person wants in their in their last will and testament should they expire um, these these types of issues are extremely important to get to the bottom of because they really do go to the heart of I think what uh, what the interesting part of anarchy really is I did broach this subject with Larkin Rose in an edition of Corbett Report Radio that I'll link up in the show notes where we talked a little bit about these issues but it's definitely something that I think we'll have to come back to there are a lot of different ways to explore um, this idea. And one of them, I'm not necessarily advocating it, but it is a very interesting and important, historically important idea that not many people in this day and age know about, but was wildly popular at the time, was the work of Henry George, um, which is broadly known as Georgism. And people can look up uh, Henry George's works and his idea of the land tax as the only um, the only type of tax that's needed or, or that is uh, really allowable. Um, Basically, he, he had a, a very interesting and, and a pretty unique system that really wasn't socialism as we know it, What wasn't capitalism as we know it, wasn't, does, didn't really correspond to any of the political systems that we understand today. So it really does deserve some scrutiny um, out there, and I'll put some links in so you can read some of George's work on that matter. Uh, again, a lot, of, uh, a lot of things to explore there, and I hope we will get to explore that in later editions of the podcast, or hey, maybe the podcast-umentary series. Uh, moving right along to Devin. Uh, quote, I'd like to know if you think there is any truth to the theory that KAL 007 was set up to be shot down by the Soviets because Larry McDonald was on board. Uh, apparently, he was planning to run for president in the 84 election and was a staunch enemy of the New World Order. Yes, Devin, you are in luck. I have done an entire podcast episode about KAL 007 and, uh, and about Larry McDonald and the downing of that flight and the mysterious circumstances of it and the questions of whether people actually survived that flight. Um, and are still alive, per, per, potentially. Um, just a, a very, very, very interesting story. So I will put the link in the show notes so that everyone can go check that out if you haven't heard it already. And even if you had, it might might be bare uh, re-listening because it is, a, again, a very interesting story. Um, unfortunately, no conclusive evidence um, regarding that, but certainly a lot of questions that really do make one, uh, give one pause for thought. Not the least of which just being the 007 and the... Um, the suggestion, which I think is borne out by evidence that 007, the KAL 007 was some sort of uh, reconnaissance flight, spy flight that was being used by American intelligence to sound out um, Soviet uh, military response to, to airspace invasions. At any rate, that was the, uh, the incident that resulted in the creation, or at least the excuse for the creation of the GPS, uh, not the creation of the GPS system, but the, the giving of the GPS, the military GPS system to commercial aircraft and down through the days to today where everyone has access to the GPS system. So a very interesting little piece of history. I hope people will check out that podcast so they can find out more about it. Uh, moving on to Zed. 
Now most people consider, including myself for a long while, both 1984 and Brave New World to be warnings. I am starting to question this. Both stories end on a defeatist note. Instead of writing stories to help rally and inform people against the rising threat of totalitarianism, both authors wrote books that essentially amount to doom porn. Both books seem to kill off any hope of succeeding against the elites and to love their servitude or die. I could not help but to ask, why is this? Were the stories really warnings, or were they a way of, for humanity to unconsciously accept the plans laid out for them? Were both Huxley and Orwell insiders trying to warn the public about the plans of the elites, or were both authors merely doing their job as Fabian wolves in sheep's clothing? Excellent question, Zed. And uh, this is one that I have explored before. And in fact, uh, people can turn to a previous conversation I had with Tom Secker about pro- predictive programming, where we discuss these types of issues. And uh, it is a very important question to ponder, I think, because the, the question really does arise, can you write about a, a warning about a p- potential future tyrannical society without in some ways that reinforcing the idea of the inevitability of that tyranny? Um, I, I obviously I don't have a definitive conclusion here. I cannot say with any definitive certainty about these historical figures what precisely their motivations were. But my sense would be that 1984 and Orwell were genuine serious warnings, and my sense is that Huxley and Brave New World was more predictive programming in the sense of oh look how terrible this is. We don't want this to happen do we? And I get that for, from the tenor of talks like the talk that I often cite, the 1962 speech at Berkeley by Aldous Huxley, The Ultimate Revolution, and, uh, and other, uh, other, of course, pieces of Huxley's own biography and the Huxley family and their complete 100% ensconcement right there in the heart of the, uh, the British uh, gentry that came up with eugenics and, uh, and uh, all of that, his grandfather being Darwin's bulldog, and all, all of the, the connections of the Huxley family lead me to believe Huxley was very much an insider who very much knew what was coming, and I get the sense that he was a uh, wolf in sheep's clothing, that he didn't particularly um, decry what was happening, even if he proclaimed to be decrying it. At any rate, this is part of the fascinating things that we we look at in film literature in the New World Order, my monthly podcast series. And for those who are watching the video of this and do not subscribe to the Corporate Report RSS feed, you won't know about that because it's an audio-only podcast that I do once a month. And we explore issues like this. So I hope you'll join me in that exploration as we continue to ponder such things as, uh, well, is there predictive programming? Is there any way to escape predictive programming? Can you write warnings without it inevitably coming true? Etc. Etc. So, very interesting issues, and again, I don't have any definitive ideas, but I think my sense is that Huxley was not being completely honest when he pretended to decry the Brave New World Society. Uh, let's move on to Mitch. I would like to get your opinion about global warming being seen as a swindle, which could be plausible if you consider we, the people, have to pay for it, and government is reaping the benefits, and history has shown that we still come out, we, we're still coming out of the last ice age. But if you consider that Coca-Cola and BP, etc. are profiteering by us denying the facts, wouldn't it do more harm than good? All right, thank you for the question, Mitch. I do appreciate you um, posing the question, although I do have to differ with at least some of the underlying assumptions of this question. Um, For example, us denying the facts is not something that I would ascribe to. It's not uh, something that I would say I am doing. I would say that I'm attempting to point out the inconvenient facts that uh, tend to go against the so-called consensus of global warming, the global warming mythology. 
Um, so I would say that the people who are denying the those inconvenient facts uh, are the ones that are denying the facts. Also, I'm not really sure how Coca-Cola is profiteering off of global or global warming denial, if you want to call it that. Um, I, I don't get that. I understand the idea of BP and the oil companies uh, uh, trying to be against uh, the global warming. I understand why people think that, although the reality, of course, is the exact opposite. That, in fact, it is the very uh, moneyed elites, the the oil barons, the, the monopolists of the 19th century, for example, the Rockefellers, who were absolutely at the heart of uh, of funding the global warming movement and, and continue to be. In fact, we have not only um, uh, members of the boards of the Seven Sisters, the seven companies that resulted from the breakup of Rockefeller Standard Oil back in the day, um, going around the... the the Rockefellers still sit on the boards of many of these corporations going around and um, and telling these corporations that you will start supporting um, the green movement in general. Um, but we also have actual documents uh, pointing this out now. In fact, you can turn to a recent uh, post on Financial Post, um, new U.S. funding for the war on Canadian oil, talking about how the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, the Oak Foundation, the Sea Change Foundation, George Soros's Tides Foundation, and of course, the Rockefeller Brothers Fund have been funding the opposition to the tar sands in uh, in Alberta, in Canada. Now, why would they be funding opposition to the development of oil resources? Is it because they, they love the environment and they're so concerned about global warming? Or is it because the oil companies see in this the perfect opportunity to turn off the spigot, to stop that spigot from opening? any further, if you can stop more oil from coming online because of environmental concerns, then you actually increase the price of the oil that already exists. You stop it from being um, exposed as a lie, the peak oil lie. You stop that from being exposed because uh, you start to to uh, decrease the artificially decrease the oil supply so that people tend to believe that we're running out of oil, and that artificially inflates the price. So. Um, so I think that very much the oil companies, although they seem to be against the, oh, they're, they're funding the opposition to global warming. On the contrary, I think they are very much, very much on board with the entire global warming mythology. I have talked about this issue of artificially inflating the price and artificially um, uh, limiting the supply before on the podcast. So I'll put a link into that previous podcast where we talked about that and, and examined that issue, including, of course, the peak oil ramifications and the fact that the oil companies are very much on board. So I, I tend to disagree with the, uh, the premises of your question. I think that uh, quite the contrary, there are people who are very much profiteering over the, uh, the current global warming scare, not only the big corporations that, as I say, tend to benefit from keeping the oil spigot closed, but also, of course, I mean, the industry of now research into man-made global warming and literally the billions upon billions upon billions of dollars that is coming that are coming out from government uh, funds, government coffers, to pay for research and to, for, to pay for various projects to mitigate the global warming disaster that, uh, that supposedly is coming. So I think quite the contrary to the uh, line that's put out there in the, uh, in the, in 
in most of the mainstream media that this is uh, an impending threat that needs to be dealt with and there's a big industry funding the opposition. I think it's the exact opposite. I think there's a huge industry that's relying on the propagation of this false alarm. And, uh, and that's something that I want to cover more in the future. I don't think I've talked about that enough, but I did write an article about the alarmist machine back in the day, um, trying to counter this idea of the denial machine. So I'll put the link in the show notes to that so we can uh, start exploring from that point. Let's move on to the next question. Uh, Gregory writes, hey, can you tell me what you think of the current JP Morgan payouts? Is it starting to crumble a bit? Now, this is an interesting question because it goes to a very timely issue. For those who don't know, uh, J.P. Morgan was recently slapped with a $13 billion settlement um, regarding its dubious uh, mortgage transactions during the uh, the housing bubble and crisis. Um, A $13 billion settlement. Wow, that sounds like a lot of money they've had to pay. Maybe they've learned their lesson. Maybe they're really chastised now. Maybe this is the beginning of the end for J.P. Morgan. Ha ha ha. Of course it isn't. I mean, first of all, the thing to keep in mind with this lawsuit, this settlement that they uh, they just conducted with the U.S. government is that this $13 billion buys them out of any criminal compli- uh, any criminal wrongdoing in this case. Uh, it's a no admission of wrongdoing settlement. So again, they won't face any criminal charges for any of this. And also the $13 billion, uh, one little caveat to that, as uh, Ms. Shedlock um, writes on his blog, is that of that $13 billion, $7 billion is tax deductible. So don't worry too much, JP Morgan. It won't affect your bottom line all that much. And just think about how much money you have to make in order to be fined $13 billion. Um, there's no doubt that JP Morgan is up on the deal at the end of the day. And that's exactly why the big crooks make the big time deals. And then they pay off the big time cronies in Washington to uh, to get out of the, any wrongdoing. Uh, a very interesting little story. And it was recently explored in much greater detail and length by uh, Tim Kilkenny and Andrew Hoffman at Revelations Radio News in uh, uh, podcast 107 of Revelations Radio News. So I'll put the link in there so you can listen to their commentary on it. And, uh, and they do a good job of covering that, so I'll just leave it there for now. Uh, let's move on to William. I have noticed when referring to your website, you use the pronoun we, implying the Corbett Report encompasses a team beyond yourself. Is this true? If so, who are the other members of your team, including the woman who does the voiceovers with the lovely English-accented voice? All right, thank you for the question, William. A very good question. I do sometimes say we when I refer to the Corbett Report, and when I, if I do, it is we as in the royal we, And or it is we, as in me, referring to all of you guys out there, the listeners and supporters of the Corbett Report, as part of this Corbett Report endeavor. But I assure you, I am the only person working on this website. I am the one-man show behind the Corbett Report. So there is no team behind me, although I would very much like that to change in the future. And if and when and however I'm able to secure the funding to actually hire an assistant, I would very much like to do so because I could do a lot more work uh, of the actual work of putting together the reports rather than editing and posting and publishing and producing and webmastering and all of that all of that uh, fun stuff that gives a lot of headaches behind the scenes. So for every hour on air, I'm sure I spend four or five hours off air um, preparing and posting and editing and producing and all of that stuff. So it would be great if I had someone who could do that full time. I clearly have no funds to be able to hire someone to do that right now. And I get a lot of offers from people 
uh, offering to volunteer their time, but that's not really going to work for me. I, I want someone I, who is actually physically here, who I can physically see on a day-to-day basis. And in order to even get to that point, I need a studio space or something more than just the living room in my two-bedroom apartment. So uh, so again, there's a long way to go before there will be a we, a real we in uh, the Corbett Report. Um, as to the, the English-accented lovely woman's voice, that is a, a voice talent that I actually pay to to do that, those lines because uh, I think it's a beautiful voice and it's a very nice, welcoming voice for the Corbett Report and it's become part of the, uh, the idea of the Corbett Report, the, the sound, the, the sound, sonicscape of the Corbett Report. So, so that, uh, that is not someone that I even know or have ever met in real life. <laughs> it's just someone from the internet. Okay, let's move on to... John? I believe this is John. (laughs) I'm not reading that properly right now. Yes, John. All right. How did your early years living and working in Japan shape your view of the world and make your show become what it is today? Uh, P.S. Have you ever been conchoed? (laughs) Uh, Thank you for the question, John. And uh, well, as uh, any teacher who has taught children in Japan, I have been conchoed. Um, I don't think you can escape that. If you teach children in Japan, it's going to happen. Um, all right. And uh, as for the early years living and working in Japan, how did that shape my website or my view of the world? How did that shape what I became today? I, 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 th- I should have a, a sort of more satisfying answer to this, but I'm not really sure that there is anything I can point to in my early experiences in Japan that particularly shaped what I became or the way that I uh, uh, ended up thinking about the world. Um, to a certain extent, I think that I've just always been someone who questions authority and questions what I'm told and, and tries to use critical reasoning to, to determine whether or not things are true. I, I think that's just a fundamental part of my personality. So to a certain extent, I think you could say I was always destined to do something like the Corbett Report. Um, on another take, uh, I have talked in the past about some of my formative experiences. I've often talked about what I, I consider my the beginning of my trip down the rabbit hole, as it were. And I talk about that, for example, in the 2009 video archive DVD and the interview where I, I talk about my um, early time uh, in the early days before as I was starting the research for the website and what led me to do that. I've also talked in the subscriber-only video that's part of the subscriber newsletter. I've talked uh, before about an interesting experience I had at the airport in Vancouver um, being stopped by customs. So uh, so that was one of the early experiences that I think set the framework for my response when I started finding out about 9-11 truth and other things. But but in terms of Japan generally, I, I don't know. I don't honestly think it shaped my personality or my viewpoint that much. And everyone makes a big deal about about living in Japan as if it's uh, uh, something that's that's just really different. I, I suppose it is in certain ways, but in certain respects, it's not. It's just like anywhere else. It's what you make of it. It's who you choose to spend your time with and what you choose to, to do. And I think I would le- lead a somewhat similar existence no matter where I was in the world. Um, so that, I, again, I don't think that's been a fundamental part of what I do. Other than, I think, to say that I, it certainly has helped me remove myself from the bubble of of uh, Canadian culture and news and, and that cycle that you can get caught in very easily just by living in a place. You just become part of that general zeitgeist. And uh, living in this Japanese bubble has helped me to escape that and hopefully to to see um, North American culture and, and entertainment and all of that for what it is at a, at a somewhat removed distance. So that's, uh, that's I think, the, one of the most important aspects of that question. 
Let's move on to Teresa. She writes, uh, been thinking a lot about what you have published regarding the folks who have a vested interest in pulling the strings toward the New World Order. I was wondering about all of the alternative media coverage that has made so many of their activities more well-known. Could this same media coverage that seeks to educate the masses also serve to embolden them to exercise power more quickly in a more open way as they may feel there is nothing to lose in doing so and possibly much to gain before the masses get too savvy? Yes, this is a this is a good question, Teresa. Thank you for asking it. And certainly, I think that there is a type of race that's going on right now between the awakening, however you want to define it, of people coming online, um, metaphorically and literally, and discovering this information and interacting and engaging with it and getting more interested in it. And I see people waking up every single day to this new paradigm. So I think there is that aspect to it. And Conversely, I think that we do see an acceleration towards the tyrannical police state as well, and I think those two things are linked in a certain way. But I guess my question would be, okay, what if the alternative media is in some way, and, and the, 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 the breakthrough in the general consciousness in these issues is in some way prompting the powers that shouldn't be to, to go further, to, to go quicker, to, uh, to bring the boot down harder— what would be the alternative to that? Should the alternative media go, okay, well, it seems like we're we're speeding everything up, so let's just stop. Let's stop looking for the truth. Let's stop caring about the truth. Let's all go back to the dinosaur media paradigm. I, I don't see any sort of alternative. I think we have to pursue the truth and let the chips fall where they may. may. And uh, to a certain extent, maybe it's a good thing if this actually accelerates the, the coming of the, the police state and the tyranny, because the best way to defeat a tyrant is to make him act like a tyrant. And when everyone sees the tyranny for what it is, people will stop supporting it, or at least you would hope people would stop supporting it. A certain uh, percentage of the population will stop supporting it, let's say. And that uh, that may be enough to turn the tide. Um, I, I've always as, as asserted that the best thing... That that the uh, that the powers that shouldn't be can do from their perspective is simply to go very slowly, very incrementally, generation after generation, as they've been doing for so long, to just get us a little bit more hooked into the matrix, a little bit more hooked into the system, a little bit more asleep, and uh, they could they could really accomplish their aims in a couple of generations if they continue to pursue that approach. If they start to do things like 9/11 and big spectacular events and big in in your face uh, moves towards tyranny and NSA spying on everyone and all of this, that tends to wake people up. And I think that works against their plans. So, so my question is, what, what would be the alternative? I think we have to pursue the truth and we can't worry about the consequences of that because the only other thing that to do would be to turn a blind eye and to pretend that none of this exists and to go back to sleep. And uh, I don't know about anyone else out there, but I couldn't do that even if I wanted to. All right, uh, again, we have so many questions to get through. We're not going to get through them all. In the interest of time, let's just get to one more. And uh, as I mentioned in last edition of Questions for Corbett, every single time we do one of these, I want to highlight someone with something positive, some positive message, some solution-oriented message, uh, preferably something that you've implemented in your own life that you can share with other people. Much more important than questions to me is, uh, is telling people what, you have done or what you can do to uh, to really change your circumstances or those around uh, the circumstances of those around you that's what i think this is about at the end of the day providing answers ideas and solutions so if you have a positive solution of something you've implemented that you'd like to share with others please that get that in and i will attempt to share at least one of those in each edition of questions for corbett on that note uh the only thing that i had uh, come in that even resembled that was a message that recently came in from oliver 
who writes uh, about some answers that he has received from the Corbett Report over the years. He says, Yes, my life has changed since I started watching your work on the web. Yes, it matters so much to me to have found a source that is intelligent, is critical thinking, focuses on the important issues, and is a nice guy with a loving family, not full of hate, but full of hope and love for life. Yes, I am overwhelmed by your output and sometimes worried about your health and family. Uh, yes, I call you my best vitamin these days because my brain started to work again and is waking up after a some, somehow dull life in retrospect. Yes, I start to see the connect connections and answers that, there, uh, that are so much more logical than what others have tried to make me believe. Uh, yes, in the last few months I have started to buy different, the only vote that counts all the time and instantly, and eat different, got involved in a farm project just around the corner from where I live. Yes, I have a list with things uh, I will be changing and doing because of you. Got involved in a farm project just around the corner from where I live. Yes, I have a list of things that I will be changing and doing because of you. Linux, gold and silver, changing my bank, educating my kids on my own as much as possible to make them a critical, critical questioning but always thinking and feeling human being. Emotions matter the most. And having said all of that, my question... What is your view on the emotional, psychological aspects of how to deal with this great work and its problems in talking with others about it? All right, Oliver, thank you very much for the kind words. And I know that this is uh, in no way reflective of me as a person or what I'm doing individually, because the Corporate Report wouldn't exist without all of the people in the alternative media who are helping to spread this information and helping to educate me and others. And I help to spread that information around. It is one big virtuous circle. So I certainly don't take credit for that all myself, but I am glad that this information is making a difference in people's lives and they are attempting to implement changes because of that. Uh, you, you ask a good question about the emotional, the psychological aspects of dealing with the implications of this information. And obviously, this is a big question that I get a lot because it is one of the fundamental ones. I think the two most common questions are, how do I wake others up? And then the other one is, well, how do I deal with this myself? And it's, uh, it's a difficult question um, to answer because, of course, everyone is different. But I can tell you what I do to cope. And this is something that I wrote recently to someone who wrote in saying that they were just despairing of all this information and they needed a, a ray of sunshine or a sliver of hope. Um, basically, I, the best I can say that what I can say about how to deal with this is to always keep this information in the perspective that it deserves to be put in, which is to say that there is a reason or at least for my sake, there is a reason why I care about what's happening. There is a reason why I am concerned about the encroaching tyranny. And there is a reason why I am fighting for freedom and peace. And that reason is because I love the world around me. I love the people in my life. I deeply care about this life. And I want to live this life to the fullest that I possibly can without outside encumbrances or artificial impediments. And in order to do that, I have to spend time researching and understanding and spreading information about all of the, the nastiness in this world and the, th the people who are doing bad things that, uh, that we wish they weren't. But in order to keep that in perspective, we all need to unplug from this matrix from time to time to appreciate those things that are really the reason that we're all here doing this, the things that we really care about. For me, I spend time every day playing with my son and spending time with my wife, and uh, that keeps me grounded in who I am and what I am doing and why I am doing it. And without that uh, time um, every day to just uh, completely unplug from what's going on around me and, and appreciate what it is that I have and what it is I'm fighting 
fighting for, I'm not sure how I would be able to deal with all of this. Um, I think it's too much for any one of us as a, an island unto ourselves, which is why it's always good to have like-minded people around you. Even if they're, I mean, preferably it would be like-minded people in real life, but even if you can find a community online of people who are like-minded and able to share and commiserate in, in your problems and questions and concerns, that's always helpful too. So, of course, there's always places that you can go to try to find uh, uh, out about that. You can check your meetups, local meetups for maybe local groups, uh, study groups or that type of thing that might be interested in this information. Uh, there are Tragedy and Hope uh, community and, and all sorts of different places where one can go to try to look for people both online and off. And, uh, and that's, I think, the best that I can offer in terms of that. I know it is a lot to deal with, and it's not always happiness and pleasantness. But at the end of the day, I do hope this is a message of happiness and peace and love, because that is what we are fighting for. That is why we are fighting against this encroaching tyranny, and we have to keep that in perspective at all times. On that note, I think we're fresh out of time for this edition of Questions for Corbett. I do appreciate all your questions. Please keep them coming in. Please use hashtag QFC on Twitter and YouTube so I can find your entries easily. And uh, please, more audio or, or those types of questions, always appreciated. And on that note, we're going to leave it there for now. And hopefully another regular edition of the podcast next week. I'm working on another podcastumentary for later this month on the 100th anniversary of the Federal Reserve. So stay tuned for that. And in the meantime, thank you for listening. Take care.